we're starting this new series called Heroes, and I, I want to do that song at some point during this series of messages. We need a hero. You know, I, I might do the, the um, Shrek version of it on stage with someone else doing the dancing. I don't know, but it's hard to, it's hard to figure out if that's going to be viable on YouTube because, you know, they're going to copyright, copyright flag that and block us. But uh, here's the deal. When I was a kid, I loved the concept of being a superhero. Uh, some of you know this, but when my dad visited his church for the very first time in California... Before they hired him, okay, so we were coming from Durango, Colorado, we were going out to California to visit this church to see if that church wanted to hire my dad as a pastor, and I believe it was on that very first Sunday, if my mom's watching this, she can correct it in the comments, but I believe it was that very first Sunday going to that church to make a good first impression, I was wearing, as a three-year-old kid, I was wearing some nice Sunday outfit and a blue, no, a, a baby blue flannel Batman cape because, you know, that's what you do. And for some reason, my parents thought that was acceptable for me. The Batman cape was kind of my equivalent of a blanket for a while. I had my Winnie the Pooh bear and I had my Batman cape, a very soft flannel, baby blue kind of Batman cape. This was before Batman was the Dark Knight and back when he was still Kapow, you know, kind of Adam West. Anyway, I just thought it was the most amazing thing. And it was so lightweight, especially because I had worn it threadbare almost, that if I would run around, it would fly behind me. And oh, I was sailing. I was the best superhero because my Batman could fly. The real Batman can't, but my Batman could fly, and the cape was giving me all the power to do so. Man, I loved that. As I got a little bit older, then I got into the um, basketball thing, and I was playing basketball, and my teams were never good, never good. We lost all of our games all the time, and in most of those teams, I got to be the point guard. Now, the point guard is supposed to be sort of the best ball handler and sometimes the best scorer on the team, but since my team was so bad, you now understand how I got to be the point guard, and so I dreamed, you know, in my, in my little basketball court thing behind our house, I would dream of hitting that last second shot and I'd be counting it down. I'd be like, three, two, one. And I'd never made that shot. Even in my backyard, I never made the shot. I was terrible at basketball, except for the long distance three-point shots when I was in high school, but too afraid to actually take. Anyway, I would imagine myself as being the superhero, hitting that last second shot. Three, two, one, there it goes. The crowd goes wild. You know, I was that guy in middle school and high school in my mind. Then when I got older and I had a son, I realized that I could be a superhero all over again by just simply adopting some Star Wars persona. And so my son and I bought lightsabers, the plastic lightsabers that didn't even light up. This was before they had light bulbs in them. And you'd just flick it and the plastic would stick out and we'd whack each other's lightsabers and pretend to be superheroes. And every now and then I'd let him touch some part of my body and I'd fall on the ground as if I'd dissolved into the force. But I was his superhero superhero Luke Skywalker something or other. 
Actually, for my son, it was probably more Qui-Gon Jinn or Obi-Wan Kenobi or something like that. He was more into those guys. He didn't know Luke until later. But man alive, I love being the superhero. But as I've gotten older, reality constantly settles back in. And I recognize time and time again this hard truth. The truth is that I am not the hero I want to be. None of us are. We are not the heroes that we want to be. We imagine ourselves as the superhero who can do a whole bunch of things, who can win the game, who can defeat the galaxy, or whatever it is. But as you get older, more and more, you realize that you're not the superhero that you would really like to be. Even when it comes to being a dad or some of the smaller things in life, I'm not the superhero that I want to be. But on the flip side, our problem is, as people is that once we realize we can't be the heroes we want to be, we face a very different problem also. It is that we don't want to be the heroes we can be. See, every one of us has superhero in us. Every one of us has been designed by God to be super in something. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that every single one of you who is listening to this, watching this now or in the future, I have no doubt that every single one of you can identify something about yourself that you are actually confident in doing. For some of you, you are confident in helping other people. For some of you, you are confident in having a conversation one-on-one with someone that you care about. For some of you, you are confident at your particular job and the specific things that you're doing in that job. Some of you are confident as being a parent. Some of you are confident in some other ways. We are all superhero capable in some area, but a lot of us don't want to be heroes in the ways we can be. Because, see, here's the problem. Sometimes I feel incapable. Even though I know I can be a superhero in that area, I just don't feel capable. I don't feel ready. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel empowered to do so. Sometimes we feel the burden of responsibility. You're like, I'm not going to enter into the superhero situation there. I'm not going to enter into trying to be a superhero dad because that's such a huge responsibility. It's easier to just walk away from that responsibility. And so some of us feel we're not capable. Some of us feel like it's too much of a responsibility. Some of us have tried it before and we failed. We took that risk for that job and no one liked what we did. And so we failed and we lost that job and we're not taking that same risk again. Even though we might be able to be a superhero in that area, we're just not going to take that risk anymore. Or for some of us, we pushed the envelope just a little too hard and someone got hurt. And we look back at that part of our lives and we're saying, I don't ever want to hurt a person like that again. I don't want to take that risk again. See, here's our problem. We know we can't be the superheroes we want, but we don't want to be the superheroes we can be. And it puts us in a dilemma. The dilemma is answered and addressed by the book of Judges. And I'm going to phrase it this way for all of us for this series. A quote that we need to have in our own hearts and minds as we read through the book of Judges. It goes like this. I am a hero, but I need a hero. I am a hero, but I need a hero. 
I am a hero in so many ways that I'm unwilling to accept or, or afraid of. And so I need a hero. I need someone to be my mentor. I need someone to be my leader. I need someone to be my guide. And I need someone to save me from the things that I can't handle so that I can become the hero that I can be. I am a hero, but I need a hero. This is the book of Judges, the most, one of the most disappointing books in the Bible. Because it is a book that consistently shows us some major human problems. There are two incredibly big themes that go throughout the entire book. The problem is they don't become explicit until the end of the book. And so I don't want to wait six or seven weeks to get these themes to you because they are threads through the whole book. You just don't see them explicitly until the end. So I'm going to give them to you now so that you can be thinking about them all the way through this study. The first theme is that human trajectory is downward. If you were to make a graph, a chart, of human beings through time. There are some ways you can look at human beings and say it's all up and to the right. Technology is getting better. Human beings are getting more socially conscious with each other. The world's economy is going up. Health outcomes are going up, except for this year, of course. But in general, health outcomes are going up. And so lots of human life seems like it's on an up and to the right trajectory. But the book of Judges reminds us that there is a much deeper reality where human trajectory is downward. Let me just show you how we see it in the book of Judges. I put a chart in the live event. Hopefully it shows up in the new version of the app. It does show up well in the old version of the app. I wasn't able to test it. But I'm just going to put it up on the screen here for those of you who are with us, not as a table form. But these numbers show the years of peace and the years of oppression. The first number is the years of oppression that the Israelites face under foreign powers. So some foreign enemy comes in and they take charge of the land and they just mess with them for a long time. The first number is the years of oppression. Then there is a judge who shows up. The judge rescues them, saves them from their oppressors. And then the next number is the period of time of peace that they have after that judge rescues them. Sometimes it's the lifespan of the judge. Sometimes it's the judge plus some other leaders after him. But that's the period of time that they experience peace after that judge. And then at the very end, I put a percentage so you can see how bad is life for them. The first number is eight years of oppression. Then a man named Othniel shows up and they have 40 years of peace. That's a 20% bad situation. Life is only 20% bad for them during those 48 years. Then there's 18 years of, of oppression, and a man named Ehud shows up, and there are 80 years of peace. That's basically the same ratio. It's a 22%. A little bit worse, not too much worse. Then there are 20 years of oppression, and a judge named Deborah shows up, followed by 40 years of peace. Getting a little bit worse. Now we're at 50% bad. Life is 50% bad now. And then there's seven years of oppression. Doesn't sound too bad. And then there's 88 years of peace after Gideon. And that sounds amazing. That's only 8% bad. We're swinging it back up. It's like a V recovery. We're swinging it right back up. It's going to be great again. There's only one problem. During the 88 years of peace, there's also a civil war of a sort where a whole lot of Israelites die. We'll talk about that when we get to that especially because there's a pretend king at the time who kills 70 of his brothers 
and you're wondering, how did he have 70 brothers? Yeah, it's a little messed up. Anyway, we'll get there. So the 8% bad is a little bit, you know, take that one with a grain of salt. Then there's 18 years of oppression, followed by a judge named Jephthah, and then 31 years of peace, and it's like, yay, but look at the percentage. Now life is 58% bad. And then there's 20 years of oppression, followed by a guy named Samson, who's then followed by, excuse me, 40 years of oppression, followed by Samson, and then only 20 years of peace. If you pay close attention, you will notice that with the minor exception of how I've calculated the Gideon time, life has gotten only worse for the people of Israel. The ratio of time spent under oppression and under peace has gotten heavily in the oppression favor. And the writer of the book of Judges makes it very clear at the end of his book that we are supposed to know that with Samson, they spent twice as much time under oppression as they did with peace. That's the first major theme of the book of Judges. The second major theme that, again, you don't see until the end is that the reason for all of this downturn, the reason for the downward human trajectory is sinful freedom. This is an interesting concept. It's sinful human freedom that leads to this downward trajectory. And you're saying, but wait a minute, I thought freedom was a good thing. Yeah, but we're sinful people. And when sinful people are given freedom to do whatever they want to do, life does not get better. Life gets worse. To prove this point, I want to share with you a whole bunch of verses from the end of the book of Judges. Just take a look at these. It's a concept that gets repeated over and over. Let's see if you can figure out what the key phrase is. It says in Judges 17, 6, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They were free. They just did whatever they wanted to do, right? It sounds like the perfect junior high mantra. I don't want a king. I want to do whatever seems right to me. And on into high school and then into college. And then, quite frankly, we would love this for the rest of our lives. There was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Let's go on to the next one. In Judges 18.1, it says, In those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And you get distracted by all the other things, but there was a phrase at the beginning that maybe you noticed. Let's go on to the next one. In Judges 19.1, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and then we, can, we continue to get a story about this particular Levite. And and you might get distracted by the story because the story is really interesting, but something happened at the beginning of that phrase, at the beginning of that chapter that, I don't know, might stick with you. And then the last verse of the book says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Four times at the end of the book, the author reminds us, oh, by the way, Israel had no king. Oh, by the way, I might not have said this yet, but Israel had no king. You know what? I don't know if I've said this, but Israel had no king. And then at the very end, just to remind you, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The old King James phrase is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When people have the freedom to do whatever it is they want to do, 
human trajectory doesn't go up. It goes down. Certain kinds of freedoms do produce upward moves, but the human condition is such that you put us in a condition where we don't have a hero, we don't have a king, we don't have a leader, and we go down. The question at the end of the book of Judges is simply this, will these people ever get the king they need? Will these people ever get the hero that they need? And the question is the same for you and for me today. We need a hero. We need a leader. We need the person who will stand up and point the way and lead the way and solve the problem. The very first verse of the book of Judges goes this way. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and make sure you open them up or open it up in the app. But we're going to look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to put it up on the screen just because it's so profound. And it says this, after the death of Joshua. Now remember, Joshua, that book began with Moses' death. And we were reminded over and over and over again that Moses was dead, but we were reassured Joshua's okay. Here, Joshua's dead. And there's a big question mark. The Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is going up first to fight against the Canaanites? I don't know if they're asking that question because they're saying, God, I don't want to go, but just tell me so we know who's supposed to go first. Actually, I'll give them a little bit more credit. I think this is an honorable thing that they're doing. These people are saying, we've lost our leader. Who's the next leader? And they go to God for it. They ask God. Let's just be clear. This is the last time the Israelites do the right thing in the book. The whole rest of the book, there are moments of shining glory, but this is the last time in the book the Israelites collectively are depicted as doing the right thing. The last right thing they did is to ask God for a leader. And he gives them one. But he doesn't give them one immediately. Take a look. Here we go. Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Verse 2, the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. Not one person, a whole tribe. I have given the land into their hands. And so God says, I'm in charge and I'm giving the land into Judah first. The men of Judah then said to Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. Here at the very beginning, Judah is ready to go. And they get some others to join them. And they go with them. Verse 4, When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then, by the way, um, if you have a junior hire in your life, Judges is a great book to go through with junior hires because there is enough gore to keep them interested. You'll see a great example of that next week. But this one, cutting off thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. I'm going to pause here for just a moment because 
Um, the book of Judges, like the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy and the other books beforehand, leads us to an interesting moral dilemma. And this is the moral dilemma that I've addressed multiple times from this stage. The question is, what do we do with the depictions of apparent genocide in the Bible? Does God condone genocide? And I've given you repeatedly four answers to that. And so I just want to review them right now. There are four things that you have to know about the Bible's depiction of genocide. First of all, God gave a command only once in the history of the world to wipe out a group of people from an area. God said to his people in Israel, when you enter the land I promised, you are to wipe out all the people or drive them out, whichever you can do. Some of the cases kill all the people. Some of the cases push them away. This is a very interesting point because we view that as something that is incomprehensible, that God would say an entire group of people need to be killed. But at the very least, you need to remember, first of all, that God only gave this command once. It was for the Jewish people entering the land. Number two, the command was specifically to purify the land. It was not to do a blessing for Israel. It was not because Israel was better than those other people. It was entirely because of this one reason. God said, I've given these other people time in the land, and they have not turned towards me. They've turned against me. And so it's now time for me to punish them. God gave these other people hundreds of years in the land. Peace and freedom. And then finally he's saying it's time to judge them. And I'm not judging them with righteous people. I'm judging them with Israel. So that's the second thing. The third thing is the command followed insane amounts of evidence. We're talking Moses parted the Red Sea. We're talking the earth opened up and swallowed people. We're talking fire came down onto a mountain. God's voice spoke to the people audibly. They heard these things. The pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud by day. These were awesome, amazing miracles God confirmed over and over again that it was truly the creator of the universe who was telling them to do this. That's number three. And then number four, the people who asked for mercy got it. God specifically gave rules. If the people ask you for mercy, give it to them. Back in Deuteronomy, there were some very clear passages about that. And so let me show you the verse that we just read again, verse 7. It says, Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. The man with no thumbs and no big toes recognizes it is God's judgment on his life. It's not because the Israelites are better. It is because God has judged him because he previously had conquered 70 other kings and taken their thumbs and toes and forced them to be subservient to him even under his table. God was bringing a perfect kind of justice to these people for one moment in history. And as we go later on into this, You will see today the exact moment in history when that command comes to an end. Never to be done again. We'll get there in just a little bit. But before we do, let's keep going because I want to take you again into chapter 1, deeper to verse 19. Take a look at this. In verse 19, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, hang on a second. Right there at the very beginning, you have to ask the question, they were unable to. God had just said to them, I have given the land into their hands. 
He had just said to them, I am going to give you the land. And now all of a sudden, there's some reason why they are unable. And the reason they are unable is something that has nothing to do with their own death. It has nothing to do with battle. It has everything to do with fear. The enemy's got iron chariots. The conclusion is they never bothered to fight them because the enemy had iron chariots. It doesn't say the enemy routed them. It doesn't say the enemy defeated them. It just said they were unable because the enemy had nice cars. Verse 20, as Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb who drove it from the three sons of Anak, which is interesting because the Anakites were the giants, the nine foot tall giants from whom uh, Goliath was descended. And so this is just reminding us that the biggest warriors in history were defeated by Caleb because Judah couldn't, the whole, the whole group of people of Judah couldn't fight them because they had iron cars. But this other guy could defeat giants. It's just an interesting contrast. Verse 21, the Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. In other words, the Benjamites also failed to drive out their people. Skip ahead to verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanak or Dor or Ablim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Echo or Sidon or Alab or Aksib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtali too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. If you're getting lost in the names, let me remind you of something. There was supposed to be one name that you had to remember, Israel, right? That's the only name you needed to remember, Israel. If you wanted to remember more names, you could have remembered the tribes of Israel, but you were never supposed to remember all these other names, All these other names were supposed to be gone from history. This is a huge picture of failure. Verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country. The Danites, by the way, were the Israelites. The Amorites were not. So that means the enemy now confined the Israelites to a smaller portion of area. And the Amorites were determined also to hold on to Mount Herez, Aijalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from the Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. In other words, God said, go into the land, you will conquer it. And they go into the land and go, it's too hard. I'm just going to settle here. Now, I'm going to make a quick comment about something because a number of these passages that we looked at talked about forced labor. And so I do want to talk very briefly about the Bible's depiction of slavery just so you can understand some things about slavery in the Bible because you will see this word forced labor show up time and time again in the Old Testament. You've got to know what it is. Is it the same kind of thing that white people did to black people here in the United States? Um, well, no, it was significantly different. I'll show you what biblical slavery really is all about. First of all, God never gave the command that they were supposed to enslave people. 
people. He did give them instructions about how to treat slaves. God never said to them, you must make them slaves. It's one of the reasons why the Bible uses the phrase forced labor instead of the phrase slaves. Because these were people who were working because they needed to work because they were the ones who were being oppressed by another government, the government of Israel, sort of. They were being controlled by the government of Israel, and so that's why their labor was considered forced labor. But they weren't slaves in the sense of any modern slavery or even ancient slavery that we might know about from the Roman times on. God's rules about slaves were consistently a recognition of the value of slaves as human beings. Over and over and over again, the law of God regarding slavery is that they are humans, not property. Which leads me to this last one. They are people, not property. Someone was allowed to own the production. They were never allowed to own the person. They owned the production this person was capable of doing, but they didn't own the person himself. I don't have any time to go into any more of the details of that, but I hope that at least settles some of your concerns. There's a much bigger question, though. God promised them they would enter the land and he would go before them. And now they're in the land and they aren't experiencing God's promise. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you thought God had promised you something and then it didn't come the way you thought it was going to come? Have you ever been in that place where it feels like God has dropped his ball and now you've got to pick it up and run with it? And you're just not sure it's worth the effort. And so you just live life the way it was. One of our hero problems is that we thought God was supposed to be our hero and then sometimes he doesn't come through heroically. And so then why should we bother? God made them a promise in Joshua 23. Let me show it to you. The book of Joshua 23. It says, The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. But they entered the land and it wasn't super easy. They were threatening. They had weaponry. They didn't want to go. And so the people just let them stay there. This is an interesting situation because to us it feels like God has broken his promise, but I want to show you that God actually kept it. Chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt. And led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. And their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the place, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bachim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. This verse says, wait a minute, what? God says, I will not drive you out? Well, that's because back in Joshua 23, I didn't read this part, but they should have remembered it. Joshua 23, I'll put it up here. It says, but if... You turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you. And if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God 
will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. God made a promise to them that he would drive out the people so long as they were willing to step in line with that promise. But when they stopped pursuing the promise, God had a contingency clause. But if you stop pursuing this promise, my second promise to you is that they will become snares and traps for you. The book of Judges is the fulfillment of this promise. And right here, the angel of the Lord is saying it. I'll give you a couple things to write down so you can take these thoughts with you. When the people stopped pursuing God's plan, he stopped that plan and started another one. When the people stopped pursuing that plan, God stopped it and started another one. Now, some of us might be thinking, oh, so God helps those who help themselves. You know, you have, to, you have to do some work and then God will step alongside you. That's not the point. God had made a promise. He said, here's the promise. You keep walking in this promise, I'll keep keeping the promise. But if you take a detour from this promise, I'm going to end this promise and go to part B, plan B. I'm going to go to the other strategy and the other strategy, the other new plan for these people back then wasn't a good plan for them experientially. It was a good plan for God long term. The new plan was conquest is over, and now struggle begins. Now, remember, struggle isn't always just struggle. It's always also testing. Your time of victory is done. Your time of testing is begun. Your time of conflict is over. Your time of struggle is here. Sidebar, I want to let you know that this passage we just looked at is the end of the conquest commands. God gave the command at one time in history for the people of Israel to enter the land. They entered the land. They stopped doing what they were supposed to do. And that's the end of that command. God said, we're now moving on to plan B. Plan B is they will live in the land and you will constantly be irritated with each other. That's it. In other words, let's just be honest about this. About 1,400 years before Jesus, that is 3,400 years in the past, God said to the people of Israel, this land is not yours anymore, it is to be shared. And the people around you are going to be problematic to you, and you're going to be problematic to them, but this land is to be shared. 3,400 years ago, how do I know that? An angel said it. An angel said the time of conquest is over. They are now living here. And that's just the way it's going to be. It's an interesting application for our modern world today too. I don't have time to get into all that because I'm going to finish up our time by just simply reading to you the rest of what shows up in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnaherez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, 
who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them They refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the ways of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of of Joshua. And that last summary gives us the summary of the whole rest of the book. The people don't follow God. God sends oppressors. The people cry out to God. God sends a Savior. The Savior gives them peace. They get comfort and complacent, and then they go back to their old ways of not following God. The most amazing thing about this story is that these were people who were supposed to be heroic. These were people who were chosen by God to be his treasured possession on the earth. And yet, they became people who needed a hero. They were supposed to be the ones to bless the world. And yet, they became the ones who were oppressed by the world and needed someone to rescue them. The people who were supposed to be heroic became those who needed a hero. I hope you can relate to this basic idea. Because I'll just tell you, if I, if I were to tell you that there was a group of people on the planet and one of the people in that group had the power to control the weather and one of the people in that group had the power to produce infinite food and one of the people in that group had the power to heal the sick and one of the people in that group had the power to raise the dead. And one of the people in that group had the confidence of eternal life. If I told you there was a group of people on this planet that had that level of superhuman ability in their midst, what would you think of that group of people? You would think they were heroes. You would think they were incredibly heroic. You would think these are the people to save the world. You would think these are the people who should use their incredible resources, their incredible abilities to rescue the world. These are the heroes 
of the world. And these are the weak people that we call Christians. The people who in our midst have one who can do all these things and we ourselves have the promise and the confidence of eternal life. And yet we, those who were supposed to be heroic, find ourselves constantly saying we need a hero. At the beginning of our time at chapter 1 in Judges, I told you there were two overriding themes that went through the entire book that you had to keep track of. And then we talked about them. But I didn't tell you the whole truth because there's actually three themes that go through the whole book. And the third theme is the one that is never mentioned explicitly, but shows up more often in the book than any of the others. We get four mentions of the fact that people need a king, that Israel doesn't have a king. Two mentions of the fact that they're doing whatever it is they want to do. We get a number of mentions of other themes, but this one thing shows up time and time again without ever being explicitly called out. God inexplicably always has more grace. His method is always more grace. I don't understand it. These are the people that he labeled his heroes, and they need constant rescuing. And yet he does it. The book of Judges, you can see it as a story of people constantly failing God. You can see it as a story of humankind going on a downward trajectory. You can see it as a completely disturbing portrait of even our modern day messed up world where people in their own arrogant freedom will do whatever it is that they feel like is the right thing for them to do and yet cumulatively it seems like everything is just going downhill. You can look at Judges and get so frustrated with all of the human frailties and all of the human failures. But the one thing you can never get frustrated at is the fact that God inexplicably keeps loving them. Inexplicably keeps giving them more grace. And after 400 years of the loser judge after loser judge after loser judge and the people of Israel consistently wandering away from God... God will eventually bring them a king who's a man after his own heart and will make that king a promise that in the future another king will come, an heir of this king's throne who will be the forever king. And through the journey of an Israelite nation that thinks they should own the land when they don't really own the land, And the journey of an Israelite nation that never seems to pay attention to what God actually wants at the time he wants it. And a Jewish nation who is oppressed again by some other foreign power will come face to face with a judge named Jesus. A judge named Jesus who will say things they can't accept. And they will kill him. And he will rise again, proving for all time, that he is the hero we all need. The book of Judges doesn't talk directly about Jesus, of course, but it consistently points us to the judge that we have, the hero that we have who isn't enough. And so we look to the one that God would provide. Verse 1, the last good thing they do in the book, Joshua's dead, God 
who should be our hero? Listen to his answer. Let's make Jesus our hero, even as we look at all the flawed heroes in this book over this series. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.